Okay, let's go to the book of Numbers, chapter 7 this evening as we continue our study through Numbers together. Thus far, uh, God here again preparing the children of Israel for their departure that they might begin to journey through the wilderness. And thus far, we've seen that God has numbered the people, taken a census of them. He's somewhat organized the congregation of Israel. Uh, he's organized exactly how they were to camp, where they were to camp. Uh, he's organized the order in which they were to then depart and to march as they would journey from location to location. We've seen God then organize the Levites and the priests, and particularly the tribe of Levi, remember, was broken into those three family groups, the Gershonites, the Merorites, and the Kohathites, and God assigned to each one of them their duties, their ministry responsibilities, and roles. Uh, and now as we come into chapter 7, if you read ahead, you notice quite a lengthy chapter uh, this is. In fact, uh, just for trivia's sake, this is actually the second longest chapter uh, in the Bible. Uh, the first longest chapter, you should certainly know it, is what? Psalm 119, right, and the theme of Psalm 119, the, the Word of God, and here we find in Numbers chapter 7, uh, the second longest chapter given to us in the Bible, and interestingly enough, the second longest chapter in the Bible is basically a chapter in relation to giving. Uh, and how the leaders of Israel, uh, as examples for the people, uh, gave a dedication offering to the work of God. Uh, and really, a lot of this, of course, uh, we'll see uh, the latter half of the chapter once we get uh, to around verse 18 and on to verse 89, the end of the chapter. A lot of it is repetitious, so I will spare you the uh, laborious process of reading over the repetitious details of it. But certainly there are lessons. Again, remember, every word of God the Bible tells us is inspired. It's profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness that as men and women of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we need to remember uh, God never speaks an idle word. Uh, everything that could be included in the word of God certainly is not included in the Word of God. The Word of God gives to us in its sufficiency in the canon of Old and New Testament everything that God chose to reveal to us by His Holy Spirit, but certainly there are other things God could have said and recorded about the experiences of the history of the nation of Israel and the New Testament. John uh, Gospel tells us if everything were just written in relation to the life of Jesus, it says there at the end of John's Gospel that the, the, all the volumes of the world couldn't hold all the books. So uh, there's so much more God could have given to us. So therefore we realize, uh, you know, God gave to us what he chose to supply by the inspiration of his spirit. Every part, every portion of his word has its profitable reason. Just like in eating a human diet, let's be very honest, uh, you know, I, I, I have an issue with uh, preferring to indulge Doritos and mint chocolate chip ice cream. And I'm finding the older I'm getting, the worse that problem's <laughs> becoming, specifically after the dinner hours. But I wouldn't be too healthy if that was all I ate was the Doritos and the mint chocolate chip ice cream between, uh, you know, 7 and 10 o'clock at night. It's, it's important that uh, the balanced meal that my wife supplies at dinner time, that I take advantage of the vegetables and the other things that are there. And certain things I enjoy to digest and indulge more than others. But... Again, a well-balanced diet is what contributes to a healthy person overall. And in the same way spiritually. I mean, we, we, we can't just always indulge the, the whipped cream and the hot fudge sundaes. And there are certainly portions of Scripture we feel that are a lot more applicable and have lessons that maybe we're more interested in. Uh, but, you know, you guys certainly uh, are going to have a merit badge in heaven because especially you're coming out on Wednesday evenings and you know, tracking through portions of Scripture, keeping mind that many people uh, don't even probably read in their own personal life as far as reading the word of God and yet you're coming here to church and studying through portions of scripture and gleaning the lessons that the Holy Spirit would want to impart to us as we go through them. So uh, chapter 7 begins by simply telling us that it came to pass 
when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, so we're on the other side of having finished the tabernacle uh, being put together. So uh, this is the historical setting of when this particular occasion came to pass. The Holy Spirit is telling us that he had anointed it and all its furnishings and the altar and utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. And it's at that point, historically, verse 2, that we read, Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their fathers' houses, who were the leaders of the tribes over those who were numbered, made an offering. Now, these leaders of Israel, it says, verse 2, the leaders of the tribes that were numbered, uh, we're going to see each one of them named in this chapter. And the 12 men who were the leaders of of the tribe representative leaders we saw these men already named back in chapter one so it's the same individuals that were given to us there in the census but we're told at this point in time historically that they came and they made an offering verse three records to for us specifically uh, what they assembled together to bring but I, I love the way that the holy spirit gives this to us and emphasizes to us keep in mind that these were the leaders who by way of example set the pace and demonstrated good example for the rest of the congregation by being givers first themselves. Uh, and keep in mind, this offering that is made, it says they made an offering. The word offering in and of itself implies the idea that this is not uh, required. This is not compulsory. This is not something that we see even God asking of them that they have to give. Now, there are times where uh, we see occasions in the word of God where God will instruct to take an offering or to receive an offering, whether it's building the tabernacle structure or the temple. There are times when God does specifically ask uh, for that to be requested of the people. But this here, it just simply says they made an offering. We see nothing of this being a required thing. This is something that's done voluntary uh, among them in a willing way that they wanted, it seems, to participate in the work of God, they recognized there were certain needs that would be, uh, in a sense, uh, evident if the tabernacle was to function in, a, in a, a proficient way and that they could effectively move. We're going to see the things that they give help them to effectively transport the tabernacle through this journey in the wilderness. Remember, the Levites were the ones who would put down and, and set up the tabernacle every time they moved. And this was a moving congregation. So church moved continuously. I mean, in the same way, you may have a, a project where maybe a church moves into a facility, something like this, and, and there's a season where, okay, you know, we got to do some renovation or set up. Or, well, this was constant for them. It was kind of like when, when we first began, we were setting up and tearing down every Sunday morning as, as we met at the, at the school there. So uh, th this is kind of the same idea. Th this was a laborious process. So the work of God was constantly moving, and it needed to be transported so in light of that these leaders recognize hey th this is a lot of work that needs to be done so perhaps there's something we can do to contribute that will help that work to flow a little more smoothly and to be done a little bit more efficiently and, and recognizing the role the Levites had in taking on the manual labor of that it seems the desire came upon their hearts and it almost seems maybe they got together and somewhat collectively decided, hey, maybe we can offer some things that will help the process to just be lightened a little bit in its load. So they make this offering here. Uh, it says they brought their offering, verse 3, before the Lord. And this is what they gave. And you can tell how it would be used. Six covered carts. We'll see this would help transport uh, the different furnishings and structure of the tabernacle. Six covered carts, 12 oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders. And for each one, they gave an ox and they presented those things. Notice, presented them before the tabernacle so that they could be used for that purpose. So again, just such a beautiful thing. And I think this is a good reminder in relation to leadership is that leaders, certainly there are many qualifications I think that should go into a good quality leader, but I think leaders should and must understand the value of being givers. 
You know, if we want to lead in any capacity, whether it's to lead in our home or to lead in a, a, a place of our vocation uh, or to lead in ministry in some capacity, in whatever role or fashion, leaders need to understand the concept of giving because if you are going to lead others, you need to be willing to make sacrifices and to give of yourself in some way. Uh, it's difficult enough, let's be very honest, to just effectively lead our own lives. And that's the place we have to begin. If we're ever going to lead others, we need to learn how to lead our own life first. If we can't lead ourselves in the things of God or lead ourselves in, in, in moving in a direction that's correct, uh, we're never going to be very efficient in leading other people. And so it's enough to lead ourselves, but there's an extra measure, if you understand what I'm saying, of cost and expense involved if we're then on top of that going to try and set an example and lead others along to a place in which they should go or to provide direction or example. And so therefore, there needs to be this understanding of the importance and the value of giving, and I think even in a monetary role. Because the Bible is very clear when you study Old and New Testament that a lot of what reveals the heart and the character of a person is the way in which they manage their money. Jesus even indicated that when he spoke about how he could, you know, is entrusted with least and how he manages what is least is an indication of how he will handle much. And, and, and Jesus even pointed out this concept of how you know, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also, and that the management of our finances and resources is a very strong indication of our where our heart is at spiritually. And I think certainly there needs to be this concept and understanding from those who want to provide leadership and direction and be a good examples to others that we have our value system correct, if you understand. That we see what has value, recognizing the work of God has value. There's an eternal perspective. And here, in this very beautiful way, we have the leaders of the tribes, the leaders of Israel stepping forward and saying, hey, we'd like to make this offering. We see the work that needs to be done. We realize if we contribute something towards it, we can participate in this way monetarily to help provide some resources and it will assist and facilitate God's work being done more proficiently as the Levites would transport the carts and move the worship uh, house around the different places in the wilderness. So verse 3 records how they brought their offering and I love what it says before the Lord. I like that because any giving we give, whether it's of our money or our time or our dedication or, or anything that we offer, that, that's who the offering should be given to. Certainly it says here in the same verse, they presented it at the tabernacle, but it was brought before the Lord. The idea is, Lord, we're giving this unto you. There was a proper recognition, though how it would be used, that it was ultimately given first to the Lord. So we see the different things they brought, the, the carts and the oxen, uh, and, and brought those things. In verse 4, now they're distributed. It says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, accept these from them. So again, interesting that God says to Moses, accept them. Does that indicate maybe that God could have said don't accept them or refuse them? Maybe a reminder to us that sometimes there are ways that we give to God that God sees as acceptable and there are other times when we may seek to bring something to God and it's not really an acceptable way in which we're giving it. Again, when we read the New Testament, there are certainly principles even put forth in the Word of God. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says that, 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 that we're not to give grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, the Bible says there are certain ways that we're not to give. Apparently, there are certain ways we can give that God says, look, I don't really need what you're giving anyway. I mean, keep in mind, God's, God's not broke. It's not as if God is somehow saying, if you don't give, my program will fail. I can't sustain my work. Now, unfortunately, that concept is conveyed upon God's people and many times is, is seen to, to be what's articulated in the way people approach things. But listen, God's not filing chapter 11. God is not broke. God is not scratching us saying, oop, we, we miscalculated the budget. And so what are we? Listen, we're talking about the God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who can tell Peter, look, do you need tax money? Well, here's what you do. Go down, throw your rod into the lake there, catch a fish, and the money will be in the fish's mouth. And we're talking about a God that can miraculously provide whatever he needs, however he needs to do it. So any giving that we ultimately do, what are we doing? We're giving back to the Lord 
what already belongs to him. It, it, it's a management issue. I don't give, please understand, I don't give for God's sake necessarily. I give for my sake because I'm selfish and I'm greedy. And so when I give, it's helpful for me. God's, God's not raising funds. He's raising children in the way that he gives. He's teaching us how to trust him and to say, Lord, it all belongs to you. So in honor of you, I want to give a portion back to you. or I want to use these resources for what is eternal and prioritize the way I manage it. So as we do these things, certainly these are ways that we're just learning stewardship and we're learning to trust the Lord to say, Lord, I trust you that you are my provider. And so therefore in this proportion, and again, we're to give regularly and proportionally it's a proportional thing according to how God has prospered you you pray about it you determine and in a proportional way you give to the Lord saying Lord you're my provider and I do this because I want to do it not because I have to it's a grudging necessity I do it and I believe you'll provide for me and I can do this freely without a grudging sense in my heart of a struggling to let go of it God says no that's not a way to give or of necessity that is I have to I feel I'm required to again the Bible says, no, we should give hilariously the idea there, the indication is joyfully. Lord, I give it because I want to. And it's an honor to participate in your work. And I, I want to share in the things that you're doing. And I want to participate in this way. I can't maybe do what the Levites do, but I can support them and I can partner with them in what they're doing in their work. And this is what these leaders are doing. And because of that, God says, okay, therefore Moses accept it which is a good reminder there to me is I think an acceptable and an unacceptable way to give and at the end of the day I want to give in a way that's acceptable and pleasing to the Lord so Moses accept this from them that here's why that those things may be used as we said in doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting so Moses received the offering that they're giving so that you can use those things to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting and you can then give them to the Levites to every man according to his service. So verse 5 tells us the specific reason that God said to accept this offering and God even designates how the offering was to be used. That's a good thing. Given an acceptable way and whatever's given, Moses, how does God want to use that? Because it was given to God and it was given to God's work. So how does God say to use that? He gets specific instructions, use it to do the work of the tabernacle and this specific offering he says I want you to give that to the Levites to each one according to a service verse 6 and on describes how they were to go about that look it's quite interesting it says Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites verse 7 now follow this pay attention two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service verse 8 and four carts and eight oxen, now that's twice as much, he gave to the sons of Merari according to their service under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Verse 9, but to the sons of Kohath, the third of the families of Levi, he gave none because theirs was the service of the holy things which they carried on their shoulders. Now take note of this. Verse 6, verse 8, and verse 9 tell us how these 12 carts were distributed to the three different families of Levi that had different responsibilities in transporting the tabernacle. And notice verse 7, two carts are given to the Gershonites and four carts, excuse me, two carts were given to the Gershonites and four carts uh, given to Merari, six carts in, in total. You have 12 oxen, two pulling each cart. But you look at that and then you're thinking, well, well that kind of seems odd. Why give one group two and the other group four and the Kohathites, they get nothing? I mean, shouldn't this, there are three families, six cards, why not two for you, two for you, and two for you? I mean, equally split up the load. And again, well, keep in mind, here's the key phrase. It starts in verse five, at the end of verse five, to each man according to his service. And then it's the repetition according to their service according to their service what did the Gershonites carry 
Verse 6, they carried the curtains. Remember all the overhanging uh, curtains that went over the tabernacle, the four different layers, and then the curtains that went around the courtyard area. Now, those were big and cumbersome and had some weight to them. Some God said, hey, that, that's some heavy, bulky, cumbersome thing. I mean, imagine these huge, like massive tarp coverings of a tent. They would be hard to just kind of physically manage. So God says they, they need some carts to, to help them transport those things more efficiently. So God says that they could use uh, two carts to do that. Verse 8, the Merorites, they received twice as many, four carts. But what did the Merorites carry? Remember, they carried all the infrastructure of the tabernacle. That is the boards and the sockets and the pillars. So all the wooden and metal things which would you agree were, were considerably heavier and probably a lot more bulky. There are a lot of boards and sockets and all these type of things made of metal and wood. So they needed twice as many carts because in a sense their load was twice as heavy and according to their service and what they needed to do, God said that's what they need to accomplish their service and their work. And the Kohathites, they're probably thinking, wait a minute. I mean, it's bad enough they got twice as much. Now we get nothing? I mean, well, how's that fair? We don't get anything. Why do we get robbed in this? And God says, no, what they would carry, they would have to carry on their own shoulders because they carried the furnishings inside the holy place itself, the lampstand and the table of incense and the Ark of the Covenant and those different things. They carried those things physically. They were not to be put on carts according to God's prescribed way to transport those things and do their service. And I think as we look at this, again, what you have here is a representation how God always supplies us with what we need to function and fulfill our specific role or our service. Again, even when we get to the New Testament, we studied the gifts of the Holy Spirit not too long ago. And what did we learn there? That God gave to each man, the manifestation of the Spirit, it was given severally to each man as he willed, as he determined. God knows what we need for our role, for our function. He knows what your load is. And according to what your load is and your function is, God will always supply adequately what you need to fulfill the service that he has called you to fulfill. And he knows what that is individually for each of our lives. So it's not an issue of, well, how come he has more than I do? Or how come? Listen, there should be none of that. There should be nothing of competition or complaining or jealousy. Well, how come he's got that? Well, because he's got a bigger load. And maybe he has to carry a bigger load. So therefore, God says, because he has a bigger load, he needs that excess because he's got a bigger load to carry. And well, well, how come they get carts and I got to carry mine myself? Well, listen, that may look like it was unfair, but there also was an incredible privilege that the Kohathites had that they had access to the very holy things, the things that, that were a part of the furnishings of the, and it wasn't the structure of the, they had contact with the holy things themselves, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, incredible privilege that they had. So just a great reminder here of how God works and he sufficiently supplies us what we need according to our specific role in service. He knows the load that you have. He'll give you and supply you exactly what you need. And, and we trust the Lord with that, that he always supplies what's necessary and he dispatches it and delegates it out according to what he sees each person needs in their role and function and verse 9 again the Kohathites again they get no cart their job was to carry the holy things and to bear those things on their shoulders so they physically manually carried again the holy things which was remember the table of showbread the the menorah the 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 seven branch lampstand the altar of incense outside the veil, the ark itself and the Holy of Holies that had the mercy seat over top of it. Remember, they put poles through those things and they had to manually carry those things. They couldn't put them on carts and just push them around. Again, keep in mind, all those things inside of the, the holy place and the Holy of Holies, they all had some element of the presence of God attached to them. And I think here God's almost reminding us in some way saying, look, uh, when it comes to my presence, we're not just going to slap it on a cart and just push it around where we want it. There needs to be a sense of, of reverence for the things of my presence. 
And I don't want them just thrown on a cart and you just push and shove them wherever you want them to go. No, no, no. God says there needs to be a real sensitive personal attention given to those kind of things. And some things we need to bear the burden of personally ourselves. And especially those things that are the holy things of spiritual life. We need to carry the weight of some things all by ourselves, all by ourselves. Again, as we think about what those furnishings represented, the altar of incense, what did it represent? Prayer. The table of showbread, what does that represent in some ways we talked about? Certainly it represents one thing, the word of God. The golden uh, lampstand that was there, a reminder of the oil lamp and, and the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and and the, the ark and the back where the holy of holy place was, the mercy seat where the presence of God was. And see, this is a reminder to us in our spiritual life that some things we have to bear the burden of personally and carry the weight ourselves. Things like prayer. Look, somebody else can't pray for you. Your spouse or another fellow Christian, they can't always pray for you. You've got to bear part of the burden of a prayer life yourself. Communication with God is direct. You know, it's, not, it's, not conver- it's not communication through a messenger. We don't use mediators. We don't go to someone else and ask them to go to God. On our, no, developing a prayer life, that's part of a burden you've got to bear yourself. I've got to carry the weight of having a personal prayer life myself. The Word of God. I can't always be dependent upon someone else giving and depositing the Word of God into my life. i, I got to bear part of that burden and carry the weight of that responsibility myself to get into the Word of God and let it feed my soul and to let it nourish me. There's part of that i got to carry like a weight for myself, my own responsibility. Same thing with staying personally filled with the Holy Spirit and experiencing the presence of God. There's a load that I have to bear, a burden that I have to bury myself as an individual Christian. Certainly God can use other people in our lives, but there are certain things that we gotta be willing to bear our own load. Remember Paul told the Galatians in chapter six, verse five, he said, for each one shall bear his own load. And certainly we need to remember that as it pertains to some of the important elements of our spiritual life. And I think the Kohathites bearing these things up on their shoulders are a a great reminder of that very thing. Verse 10 says, now the leaders of Israel there offered the dedication offering, and it seems to be an additional offering now described in the remainder of the chapter, a dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed. So the leaders offered their offering before the altar. For the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offering. Notice God told them how to go about it. One leader each day for the dedication of the altar. So God said, don't bring it all at once. Let's do this in a manageable, organized way. Again, God is a God of order. And they each brought specifically the exact same offering. But God said, however, instead of just having it all come in one mass delivery on one day, God says, I want each one to have their own day where they bring the offering. God records and each of them come in 12 successive days now. So uh, this gives an idea of what they brought. We won't read every one, but let's read the first example because it shows us what the offering was they brought. Verse 12, the one who offered his offering on the first day was Nashon, the son of Aminadab, from the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one silver platter, the weight of which 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold pan, verse 14, of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings. Now notice this is considerably more, but keep in mind the peace offerings were those offerings of fellowship whereby the worshiper would eat a portion of the offering. Another portion was burnt on the altar and consumed. The idea is that God was partaking of that. And then another portion was given to the priests and the Levites to partake of. So remember, there were 22,000 plus Levites. uh, So that would be a lot to supply this this fellowship offering. So that's why you see the greater amount here contained in the peace offering. So for the sacrifice of the peace offering, they gave two oxen, five rams, 
five male goats, five male lambs in their first year. And this was the offering of Nashon, the son of Abinadab. Now, keep in mind, we don't have the exact figures, but that's a pretty costly offering there. The gold, the silver, the animals from their flock, again, the best of their flocks that was given and again, whether this was their individual offering or maybe giving as an offering as a representative of their tribe, that's possible here as well with this specific dedication offering. But God takes note of every detail of everything that's given there. He, he pays attention. He takes careful documentation of what is given and all that is given for his work. And as I said, as we go through the remainder of the chapter here, each one of them is given their own designated day where they come and they give a duplicate offering every single time. Now, to be merciful to you, again, as I said, we won't read through each and every one of these. Verse 18, you kind of get the sense here. On the second day, Nethanel came, the leader of Issachar, and his offering was exactly the same. If you've read ahead or you want to read through, you can see it's an exact same duplication in what he offered. Verse 24, on the third day, Eliahab came of the children of Zebulun and presented the exact same offering. Verse 30, on the fourth day, then Eleazar came and presented his offering from the children of Reuben. Verse 36, the fifth day, Shelmiel came and presented his exact same offering as the list we read from the tribe of Simeon. Verse 42, the sixth day, Eliasaph came from the tribe of Gad and presented their offering. Then we read in verse 48, on the seventh day, Elishama came and brought his offering on behalf of the tribe of Ephraim, it seems. Verse 54, the eighth day, uh, this continues on again, day after day, the first day, the second day. I mean, this almost is like the, the days of Christmas, right? On the eighth day of the offering, Elisha. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to keep you alive here. I know this is, <laughs> these are hard portions to go through. Verse 60, on the ninth day, Abaddon, the son of Gennai, from Benjamin, presented, again, that same exact offering. Verse 66, on the tenth day, uh, Ahiazer came, uh, and he brought the offering from the people of Dan. Verse 72, on the eleventh day, Pagiel, the son of Okron, leader of the children of Asher, presented the same offering once again. And then finally, verse 78, on the twelfth successive day, Ahira, the son of Enan, the leader of the children of Naphtali, presented an offering and again, the exact same recorded offering. Now, again, we look at this and we think, by golly, I mean, couldn't God have just summarized that in like two verses to say, and on each of the remaining 12 days, the leaders came and they gave the exact same thing. <laughs> and, and, and then put some other things in the Bible there. You know, like, God, can I have a little more help with the marriage department? A little more help with the, maybe a, a program for how to raise children or how to handle my boss that's annoying me or to deal with this you know, issue in my life? I mean, couldn't we? But again, what does this remind us of? Well, a couple things. As I've said many times before, I know it's redundant, but God redundantly keeps putting it in here. God keeps accurate records. God's aware of everything. God is a God of detail, a God of order, and a God who cares about detail and order and that things would be in an organized way whereby things are kept notice of very accurately. And God cares about that. God does care about such things, not things happening haphazardly. No, God is a God of decency and a God of order. And I think it's a good reminder to us if we are to reflect the image of the God that we're being conformed into the image of our Father and Jesus Christ who has saved us, these are things that should become, in a sense, aspects of our nature as well too. We should, this is what God cares about. God cares about accurate records. He keeps accurate records. So, so I should care about those things too. That Those things are important to God. He took note. Why? Because God cared about what each and every one of those 12 people brought. And God wanted them to each know, look, I care about what you gave. Keep in mind, couldn't God have just said to, okay, just tell them, bring it all on one day. But what does God do? God gives each one of them their own day. Because God, look, I, I took notice that you, you brought that on the eighth day. 
And when these things would be read later on historically, the people of Naphtali, they would hear how on that eighth day or whatever, again, whoever gave on that day, I'm being accurate of the tribe there, but whoever gave on, hey, that was, that was our father, our patriarch. Our tribe donated that. And God, like, yeah, I, I noticed that. And I think God just wants to remind us in our lives that he takes careful note of everything we give to him. Everything that you do for God's work, it's never overlooked. It's never meaningless. It's never valueless. God takes notice of it. God cares about it. Hebrews 6.10, I think is a good companion verse to this. It says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and you do minister. Listen, everything you have given to God, he knows about, he's aware of, and not one element, penny, resource, effort of your time, thing that you have given has ever gone overlooked. God's aware, and he appreciates it, and he puts high value on it, and he puts just as much value on what you gave and how you gave it as the other person next to you or around you or any other person. He equally appreciates it from all of our lives. He's not unjust to forget. Nothing goes overlooked. Every labor of love, everything you've shown towards his name, Hebrews says. Again, keep in mind, Jesus we see in Luke 21, and one of the things we find Jesus doing in the Gospels is sitting at the treasury. Remember, it says, watching how people put their money into the treasury. And he watched how the rich put in their donations. And then what did he also do? He took note of, he especially commended a widow who put in just a few mites. And, and he took such notice, he even made a big deal of it. He said, that, wow, she just gave more than everybody else has given. Now, as far as the amount, it wasn't true. But what did Jesus see? The attitude in which it was given. Jesus saw her heart. And Jesus saw that what she gave proportionally cost her way more than the whatever you know the millionaires who could write a you know a, a hundred thousand dollar check and it, it didn't even phase them it was just something that but jesus said but what she gave it came from her heart it came from the right motive and it cost her something and she and jesus commended that which is again a perfect reminder of what i said earlier it's not about the amount it's the attitude of the heart it's the attitude of the heart Jesus didn't give flashing lights and bells and whistles and prizes to the people who were giving the largest amounts of money. The woman who gave the least amount of money all day was the one he was the most happy with because she gave in the right way and God took notice of it. Jesus was pleased with it. And again, just a great reminder, the Lord sees. Maybe you're saying, man, I've been giving or doing this or doing that. And look, it's not in vain. It's not in vain. Every, even a cup of cold water that you give in the name of Jesus to help somebody, to further his work, to be nice to somebody at your job, to do something kind to your next door neighbor, God sees that. That little thing that you do. That little thing, it all matters. It all matters. The things that nobody else knows about, God sees that. That email, when you feel the Holy Spirit put something on your heart or that text, you say, hey, I, just, I need to send this verse to this person or give a little encouragement and nobody else ever knows about it. But God takes note of it. He has it recorded. He writes it down and takes note of it. And here, I think this chapter just gives such a tremendous reminder of that very reality of God's heart and God's nature as he recorded these things for us. Look down in verse 89. From verse 84 to 88, repetitiously just gives the total summation. But verse 89, this chapter concludes by saying, Now when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting... To speak with him, that's to speak with God, he heard the voice of one speaking to him, notice, from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and thus he spoke to him. So uh, here a reminder, Moses, again, seemed to have some uh, you know, exceptional opportunity whereby, as God tells us in earlier chapters, that God spoke to Moses face to face like a person speaks to his friend. And again, much of this direction that's being implemented here, God is speaking to Moses as God's mediator to the people, the, the shepherd leader of the congregation. So we're told here that the way in which Moses would, it seems, most often hear from God, this seems to be a description of the, the routine way whereby Moses regularly heard God speak to him. We read so many times, the Lord spoke to Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses. How did God speak to Moses? 
Well, I think this has given us a little bit of an insight that the primary way God spoke to Moses wasn't through signs and wonders in the sky. It, it, it wasn't through all these ways in which, well, well God spoke to me because I, you know, I, I saw this happen in nature and God spoke to me. You know, through what that, the way the petal fell off that flower and God spoke some message. No, how did God speak to Moses? Moses went into the house of God and he heard God's voice. He was in the presence of God. He was in a place where there was prayer and the word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and God spoke to him there. It's beautiful. It says here that Moses went into the tabernacle to speak with God. He, he, why did he go to the tabernacle? He wanted to meet with God. He wanted to meet with God. I don't know about you, but I find one of the most clearest, substantial and reliable ways that God often speaks to me is, is just being in the house of God. And the things that God's communicating to my heart personally, he kind of just reiterates them as I'm in his house, as we're singing a song, or as we're in the midst of a prayer time, or as the word of God's being communicated, that, that God speaks to me, he communicates to me. And here Moses, who often heard from God, it says the Lord spoke to him. How wonderful, the Lord spoke to him. This is the way in which God spoke to him. How wonderful that he heard God there and he heard the voice, it says, coming from above the mercy seat, probably through the veil. But where the presence of God was, he heard God speaking to him. And how wonderful for you and I, how much more having the access we have through Christ to be able to have the presence of God speak to us. To be able to hear God speak to you personally, I think has got to be one of the most incredible, thrilling privileges and honors to hear God speak to you and to know that you heard his voice. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. What an incredible thing to have the Lord speak directly to you. Here, this is how God would often speak to Moses. And again, verse one of chapter eight, look, we read, now the Lord spoke to Moses. Such a repetitious thing we see saying, speak to Aaron and say to him, when you arrange the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so and arranged the lamps to face toward the front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. And now this was the workmanship of that lampstand. Remember, we saw this before, which was hammered gold. Its shaft and its flowers was of hammered work according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. So here in verses one through four, God gives this little insight regarding how the lampstand was to be set up. And apparently it was to be set up and positioned in a way that it illuminated in the front area where you would do the work in the tabernacle. Keep in mind, inside the tabernacle, there were what? No windows, right? So without the lampstand, it'd be pitch black and they couldn't do the work and the ministry they needed to do inside the tabernacle if there wasn't the illumination from this oil-burning lamp. So here the Lord says, look, that lampstand, I want you to position it in a way th that it makes sure to illuminate things inside the tabernacle so the priests can do their ministry. And again, as I look at this, I'm reminded, again, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. And in the same way, they were to position the lampstand to give light, to illuminate what they needed to do. I think it's important for us that we give Jesus a position in our life whereby he might illuminate everything that we need to do in our lives so that we're not walking in darkness but we have the light of life. Jesus needs to have a position in my life. I need to arrange my life and arrange my position to Jesus in such a way whereby he might illuminate my path. That's what Jesus said. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me, that's the position he needs. I'm following him. Not Jesus, I'm running over here. And um, can you come up? Can you shed a little light on this? Trying to make a decision here. I'm trying to figure out your plan. Jesus, come on, keep up with me. I'm trying to determine the next. No, he says, you follow me. And then you won't walk in darkness and you'll have the light of life. And what a beautiful thing. They had to position the lampstand in the same way Jesus is our light, but we need to position our lives in such a way where we give him the proper position to receive the illumination he wants to give to us. Verse five, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take now the Levites 
from among the children of Israel and cleanse them ceremonially. So this is now the ordination service of the Levites. We saw in the book of Leviticus the ordination of the priests, Aaron and his sons. This is now the, the ordination ceremony of the Levites. Thus you shall do to them, you shall cleanse them, sprinkle water of purification on them, and let them shave all their body, and let them wash their clothes, and so make themselves clean. So here the Levites now are being ordained and prepared to enter into their ministry as remember helpers of Aaron and his sons in the priesthood and take notice that the Levites here had certain things that were required of them to begin to prepare them there was both something that was done to them it says they were sprinkled with the water of purification a ceremonially picture a ceremonial picture of their cleansing but they also, verse 7, had to shave their body and they had to wash their clothes. So there was something that was done to them, performed in the ceremony, but they also had a personal responsibility here in this ceremonial cleansing to do something to prepare themselves. And again, I think that as we engage in any service for the Lord, there is both a dual process of what is being done in us in, in, in the sense as, as the outwardly things are happening to us but there's also a personal aspect of preparation that we need to take responsibility of ourselves whereby there's a purification process where we're saying hey may, maybe there are certain things I need to cut out of my life to get myself prepared to get myself ready to be useful to engage and to serve the Lord sometimes we need to put off old things and say hey, I, need to, I need to set aside these old dirty garments and, and not put those things back on because that's going to hinder me from being able to function in the way that God wants for me so there are certain responsibilities I think as we seek to prepare ourselves that we as we engage and serve the Lord should undertake and here as this ordination service happens there was multiple things that were required verse 8 says and then let them take a young bull with its grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil and take another young bull as a sin offering and then bring the Levites notice before the tabernacle of meeting and you shall gather together the whole congregation so this is a, a public ordination as they begin their ministry of the children of Israel so you shall bring the Levites before the Lord and the children of Israel so notice this isn't just Moses now representatives of the congregation also were to lay their hands on the Levites. Now, the idea here of laying their hands on them was for the sake of identification and recognition. The idea is laying their hands on them, recognizing these are God's divinely chosen representatives to function in the service of the work of the tabernacle. And so publicly they were brought, not just before God, but before the congregation and the people, that they might see the hands laid upon them and recognize these are the representatives that God's hand is upon. And again, we see this same principle carried out throughout the New Testament. In Acts chapter 6, they laid hands on those who seemed to serve as deacons. Uh, to care for things in Acts chapter 13 when Saul and Barnabas were set apart to go out and do missionary work they laid hands upon them Paul in the pastoral epistle speaks of laying hands upon elders and deacons to, to acknowledge and to recognize hey these are individuals and again is something being conferred when hands are laid upon people absolutely not but something is being publicly ratified and acknowledged. It's a symbolic way of saying, hey, we recognize the Lord's hand is upon this person. Again, that's why the New Testament says don't lay hands on anyone hastily too quickly because we need to make sure is the Lord's hand on this person. Sometimes we want to put our hand on somebody and push them into service and God says, no, make sure that my hand is upon them first. Because when you stand them before others or put a hand upon them and acknowledge that, then you can cause more problems than what it's worth in some ways. So here they're being brought in this ordination ceremony. And again, I find this very beautiful because keep in mind, what did the Levites do? They did a bunch of manual work. They carried stuff around. They carried boards and, and curtains and sockets. And, but again, did God see that any less important? as the priests absolutely not there was an ordination service they had to be prepared and ready 
And I think God is just reminding the people, look, that is just as sacred. Every aspect of serving me is sacred and spiritual. Again, Acts chapter 6, those who were waiting on tables had to be full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, men of good reputation. And they were just waiting on tables, doing practical works of service. So again, anything that we do for God is important. It should be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God doesn't deem one thing more important than another. Verse 11 says, And then Aaron was to offer the Levites before the Lord like a wave offering from the children of Israel that they may perform the work of the Lord. And the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the young bulls and you shall offer one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering. And the idea there is, again, here is the identification with the animal as a sin offering that they were acknowledging that they had sin in their life, that they weren't perfect in some way other than others. And the burnt offering that their life was going to be consecrated over to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. And you shall stand the Levites before Aaron and his sons and offer them like a wave offering to the Lord. And you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel. And the Levites, God says, shall be mine. And after that, that is after they have then done these things, after that then the Levites shall go into the service of the tabernacle of meeting. So you shall cleanse them to offer them like a wave offering. For they are wholly given to me, God says, from among the children of Israel. I have taken them for myself, we saw this earlier, now God's reiterating it, instead of all who opened the womb of the firstborn of the children of Israel. For all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine, both man and beast. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them to myself. I have now taken the Levites, God says, instead of all the firstborn of the children of Israel. So God took the Levites and he substituted them for the firstborn that they would be dedicated to God, that their lives would be fully given over to God and they would belong to God for his purposes and for his work. God lays claim to their lives. God says they repeatedly here, they shall be given to me. I've taken them for myself. Again, as you look at these verses here, from verse 14, God says, The Levites shall be mine. They shall go into the service of the tabernacle of meeting. Verse 16, For they are wholly given to me. I've taken them, verse 16, for myself. Verse 18, I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn. So again, pretty strongly, what's God doing? He's laying claim to their lives. Their lives belong to me, God says. Again, the New Testament tells us in 1 Corinthians that God says you were bought with a price. You're not your own. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit which are his. Listen, we need to always remember and, and, and let's leave with this thought to ponder tonight as we prepare to enter back into worship. We need to remember we were bought with a price. The blood of Jesus the, the, the firstborn eternal son of God whose blood was shed and, and, and because he substituted his life for ours, God says, I'm laying claim to your life. Your life belongs to me. I want your life to belong to me. The important thing is that we cooperate with that like Romans 12 and that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Again, the Levites, the, the firstborn weren't put to death, but I think this is where Paul's idea comes from, a living sacrifice. They were to live a sacrifice life given over to God. Hey, tonight, maybe the Lord's stirring in your heart saying, listen, I want your life to be fully given to me, like the Levites. I want you to fully give it over to me. Let me use it for my purpose. Let me have full claim and ownership over your life and to use your life how I want to use your life. That you let go of the rights and the entitlements and say, Lord, not my ambitions, not my goals, not my ideas, not what I want. But Lord, what do you want for my life? Because it's not mine anymore. What do you want for my life? How would you use it? Father, we thank you.